Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning and open to the book of Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. In a moment we will read the whole chapter. And yes, it's my plan to get through the whole chapter today. Through God's power, by His grace... And I'm reminded of what it says in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We are here this morning to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And it's a tasting and it's a seeing like the world cannot taste and cannot see. It's an amazing tasting and seeing because it is a tasting and seeing of the Lord and of His goodness. You don't know a goodness like that out in the world. The world can't generate this kind of goodness. It can't make up this kind of goodness. The only way to know what's really good is to know the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And you will be amazed. And I'm told that those who are starving to death often lose their appetite. It's an amazing thing. You're not eating, you're starving, and then you lose your appetite even to eat. I hope that we come hungry today. We are not starving. We haven't lost our appetite to feed on God's word. Because God's word is all satisfying. So as we feast on God's word, may it fill us. And fill us not with ourselves. Fill us not with the things of this world. But fill us with God himself. 
Would you stand with me as we read this morning, Exodus 24? We stand out of reverence and respect for God's word. And so this morning, Exodus 24, there is 18, there are 18 verses in this chapter that we will read through. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Your law, O Lord, is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony, O Lord, is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts, O Lord, are right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandment, O Lord, is pure, enlightening the eyes. More desirable are they than gold. Sweeter are they than honey. By them we are warned, and in keeping them, there is great reward. We know this all because of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's always good sometimes to go back to the basics. Back to something that I would want to say should be very fundamental, perhaps very simple in some regards. Why do we come to church? What's the point of gathering each and every Sunday? Do we do it because we need to do it? Is it necessary for us as Christians? How would you answer those questions? And why do you come to church? What answers might we give? Maybe we would say, I come to worship God. We are worship beings, after all, created and designed to worship. We call this a worship service, so we've come to worship God. And we desire to worship Him in the way that He wants to be worshipped. Do we give much consideration to what God wants in worship? How often... We give much thought to what we like in worship, what we don't like in worship, but have we sought to worship God how He wants to be worshipped? And I believe He tells us right here in His Word how He wants to be worshipped. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to figure it out on our own. He set forth the principles, the guidelines right here of how He is to be worshipped. Maybe you come to church to learn from God. You want to hear something that stimulates your mind. You want to hear something interesting. You want to hear something you haven't heard before. You want to hear a nice, heartwarming story or antidote. You want to hear something that will make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. Maybe you come to church because you need a good pep talk. Maybe you feel like you're running on empty. Coming to church gives you that little extra boost. Refuels your tank. Gives you a little encouragement that you need to keep going this week. Maybe you come to church to see your friends. See people that you can connect with. Hear what's going on in other people's lives. Maybe you come so someone can finally ask you what's going on in your life. So you can have someone you can really talk to. For all the reasons we might come to church, and not to diminish any of those, I believe the most fundamental reason we come together on Sundays is to meet with God. Everything else that I've just said, all the other reasons, really flow out from that truth. 
when you meet with God, you will worship Him. When you meet with Him, you will learn from Him. And not merely learn, you will open your heart to Him and allow Him to come in and change you. You will be refreshed by Him. You will be seen by Him, known by Him, loved by Him, even as others see, know, and love you. It is our understanding that we have come to meet with the living, almighty, all-knowing, sovereign God. And if we say that we've come to meet with God, how does that change how we approach church? How does that change how we walk through those doors in the morning, on Sunday morning, when we say, we have come to meet with God? Does this reality and this truth bind us together? And do we ever find it difficult? Do we ever struggle and wrestle? Do you ever leave wondering, have I met with God today? Have I really done what I came to do? And if we ever struggle, or if we ever find it difficult to meet with God, why? Why? And I think we would have to be honest with ourselves and say, if we struggle meeting with God, it's not God's fault. It's our fault. Is my heart cold and lifeless? Is my heart distant? Is my heart wrestling with sin? Is my heart keeping me back from God? God wants to meet with us. God comes to meet with us. And we have to ask ourselves a couple questions. I think these questions help us in the midst of our struggle when we feel like, God, where are you? Why don't you meet with us today? We have to ask the question first, who are we meeting with? Who is it? He is the only true triune God. God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is the holy and loving God. It's the Lord who meets with us in His holiness, and we get a glimpse of His holiness, and that makes us see just how far above us He truly is, how transcendent, how perfect, how awesome He is, how He is not like us. When we come to meet with God, we're not meeting with someone who's like us. You're meeting with the holy God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They are far above our ways and our thoughts. And His ways and thoughts are always right. 
We can barely do what Isaiah did when he saw the Lord in his holiness, but fall down before him in confession, saying, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The blazing brightness of the glory of the Lord's holiness shines upon our hearts and upon our lives when we meet with God and it exposes us for who we truly are. Meeting with the holy God means meeting with the God who knows all of you, every part of you, nothing can be hidden from him. And this is terrifying. This is a problem for people. And I think it's a problem because people can come to church because they want a safe Jesus. Jesus isn't safe. Just as C.S. Lewis told us in his story of the lion, witch, in the wardrobe. When the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are being introduced to this character, Aslan, a lion, by a couple of beavers. And as they speak about Aslan's greatness, and as they speak about Aslan's glory... The smallest girl, Lucy, asks, yes, but is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. A safe Jesus is a Jesus who doesn't save sinners. A safe Jesus is a Jesus who won't love us the way that we need to be loved. A safe Jesus is a Jesus who won't confront us with the truth. A safe Jesus is a Jesus who doesn't go into the temple and drive out those who would desecrate the place of worship saying, my father's house should be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers and thieves. Our Jesus isn't safe because a safe Jesus wouldn't go to the cross. A safe Jesus wouldn't be mocked and despised and shamed and spit upon. A safe Jesus would have given up and would have said, it's too much. I can't do it. Jesus wasn't safe because he went to the cross. He went to the cross so that you would know the holiness of God 
and at the same time, you would know the love of God. Because while the holiness of God casts us upon our knees and our face, realizing us, ourselves and all of our sin, the love of God is what comes near to us, is what cares for us, is what is expressed to us when we were enemies and ungodly people. And so we meet with God and we know the holy and loving God at the same time. And what happens when you meet with God? You have to be changed. Meeting with God but not being changed doesn't happen. When you meet with God, you cannot stay the same. This is why we preached Christ crucified. This is why we proclaim the gospel, because it's there where the holiness and love of God are put on display in their fullness for us to see and for us to know, and it's there that God brings salvation to lost and ruined sinners. Meeting with God, but not being changed is like sleepwalking. You're there, but no one's home. It is here, then, where we can meet with God in joy and not dread because of Christ. We can meet with God because of the, mate, uh, the peace that He has made with us through the cross of Christ. But do we have to come to church to meet with God? Maybe we can go somewhere else. Maybe we could do something else and still meet with God. Maybe you can meet God while you ride on your motorcycle. Maybe you can Meet with God while you take a nature walk. Maybe you can meet with God while you exercise. Now, I'm not saying anything against riding a motorcycle or taking a nature walk or exercising. But I believe that God has specifically designed His church as the place where you find the fullest expression of fellowship with God. It's the place where you commune with God. How many people say, you can really just meet with God wherever you want, whenever you want, however you want, wherever it's meaningful for you. But God has built his church and designed his church and made his church to be the place where we meet with him. 
He talks about us as a spiritual house, a dwelling place for God. It's not a particular building. It's not a particular locale. It's God's people getting together. It's God's children meeting together. It's God's family meeting together. And that's God's house, and that's where he will meet with his people. It's where, it says in 1 Corinthians, that when believers enter into your gathering and into your midst, that their hearts are disclosed before them. Their hearts are laid bare, and they say this, God really is among you. If this is the way God meets with us, how could we ever say, I think I'll pass on the Sunday. Maybe another time. I don't feel like it right now. I'm not in a place to go. What a terrible place if you keep yourself from meeting with God. God wants to fellowship with his people. He wants to commune with his people. He wants to meet with his people. What happened when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross? What happened in the temple of God? There was a veil. A veil that was thick as a man's hand. A veil that separated the most holy place from the holy of holies. A veil that separated the priests from the very presence of God. And what happened when Christ was crucified? The veil was torn in two, from top to bottom. Why did that veil tear in two? Because now, through the cross, through Jesus, you have access into the very presence of God. You don't need a veil anymore to keep you out of God's presence. You can meet with God. You can go into his very presence. And how many people are trying to stitch the veil back together? What an absurd and preposterous idea. No, the veil has been torn. Meet with God. He wants you. He loves you. He's given you access. He's not trying to keep you out. He's not trying to keep you at arm's length. He's trying to welcome you in. And how many people's fingers are weak and brittle because they spend their life trying to sew that veil back together. Exodus 24 is a megaphone to us from God saying, I want to be with my people. I want to commune with my people. This is what he demonstrates as he ratifies this covenant, as he confirms this covenant with his people. It's like a wedding ceremony where the people of Israel are coming before Yahweh and they are saying, I do. And Yahweh is saying, I do. To unify God with his people. To bring God and his people 
together, to bind them together to fellowship and commune with each other. And so how does this communion with God, how does this fellowship with God happen? How is it that we are bound to God and if we are bound to God, how do we know that we are bound to God and to communion with Him? Well, two ways. You can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. Two ways. As those sanctified by the blood of the covenant, we commune with God through a meal. As those sanctified by the blood of the covenant, we commune with God through a meal. This is the problem and the predicament of all mankind that we're dealing with here in this chapter. This is the problem that stems out of the garden. Adam and Eve lived in perfect fellowship with God. They walked with God. They heard God's voice. They knew God. In this special place that he had designed for them. I mean, can you imagine that? Being in a place where you have perfect fellowship with God. Nothing to hinder it, nothing to get in the way, no distractions. No moments where, where you feel so burdened by life that you feel like God is so distant. Adam and Eve, at one point, didn't know any of that. And yet what happened? They gave it all up. They gave it all up by being disobedient by listening to the voice of the serpent and obeying the voice of the serpent rather than obeying God. And you remember what happens right after Adam and Eve sin against God? Right after they take of the fruit and they eat of it? The fruit that he had told them, don't eat? It says that they heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did they do? How many times had they heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they would run to Him and they would meet with Him and they would be with Him? But not this day. This day they ran and they hid themselves in shame. And they were cursed because of their sin. And they lost their fellowship with God because of their sin. And they were cast out of the garden because of their sin. And God put a cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way back to the tree of life so that Adam and Eve could not come back into the garden. Fellowship with God had been lost. And there was nothing that Adam and Eve could do to get back into fellowship with God. Paradise was lost. And the whole storyline of the Bible is about God getting back into fellowship with his people. 
And that's where we are in Exodus. God has been redeeming his people. He's been bringing them out of the land of Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea. He's led them to the very mountain of God on Mount Sinai. And now here they are. And he's saying, I'm going to do everything I can to be in fellowship with you, to have a relationship with you, to commune with you. And so he wants the leaders of Israel to draw near to him. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, those were the sons of Aaron, come up on the mountain along with the 70 elders of Israel. And notice, though, what? Worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. There are certain people who can get closer to God. Moses, he can draw near. The other leaders, they have to worship from afar. The people of Israel, they, have to, they can't even be on the mountain, right? They're at the foot of the mountain. They shall not come up on the mountain. This is a holy God. You can't just rush into this God's presence. Yet this is a good God. This is a God who is working for the benefit of his people. And so Moses comes and he tells the people all the words that the Lord has spoken. And look at what happens in verse 4. And all the people answered with what? With one voice. And said, all the words the Lord has spoken we will do. With one voice, with one mind, with one heart, the people pledge their allegiance to do what God says. All of it. And how they professed better than their ability. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Really, Israel? Is that going to happen? It's the profession that they should have made based on what the Lord had said. When the Lord speaks, you listen and you obey. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He, he writes them down in a sense of holding the people accountable. And then he rises early in the morning. He builds an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars. The 12 pillars are representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he's sending young men of the people of Israel to offer burnt offerings and sacrificing peace offerings to the Lord. Burnt offerings were offerings to establish fellowship through atonement and signified the worshiper's commitment and devotion to God. The peace offerings expressed a celebration of covenant fellowship with God. To think that they would declare, we can be at peace with God. And then, Moses does something that is weird. As there are these sacrifices that are being made, he takes half of the blood and he puts it in basins, and the half of the other blood he takes and he throws it against the altar. And so here we have two parties. We have Yahweh, the Lord, and we have the Israelite people. 
And Moses is taking half of the blood and he's throwing it against the altar, the altar standing in the place of Yahweh, the Lord. And it's saying everything that the Lord has promised, everything that the Lord has said, he will do. He will uphold his part of the covenant. He is faithful. He will, he will make atonement for your sins. He will do everything to take care of you, to show you his love. And then Moses takes the other half of the blood, doesn't he? And then he reads the book of the covenant, reads it in the hearing of the people, and the people said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. They say it again, and they add this, and we will be obedient, we promise, we will be obedient So Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What is Moses doing? He's saying, this blood is consecrating you. This blood is setting you apart. This blood is sanctifying you. This blood is making you holy. It's saying, you are the Lord's people. You belong to him. And this is the greatest need still in the church today. People who are consecrated to the Lord. People who are devoted to Him. The blood that cover the people to show that they are God's. And then what happens? Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, 70 elders, they went up on the mount and they saw the God of Israel. Do not skip over those words. They beheld God. Do you want to behold God? And what's amazing is they beheld God and they didn't die. (laughs) Because that's usually what happens. You look at God, you die. That's why it says there, verse 11, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. He stayed his hand. The Lord did not come and did not eliminate them and killed them because they had seen him. But what did they see? Verse 10, they saw what was under his feet. They saw the material that was under the Lord's feet. They saw, as it were, this pavement of sapphire stone, or it was like this blue stone, and it was clear. It was this pedestal of the Lord's throne that they were able to see, like the bluest of skies. And I think why the Lord's uh, throne or the, the base of his throne or the pavement underneath his feet are described like this is because what they saw lifted up their minds to the heights of heaven. 
It took their minds off of the things of this world. It took their minds off of everything that would weigh them down, all of their sin, and it put them on the one who is above all and over all, the greatest one, the king of heaven. It put their minds on God himself. When you look at God, when you behold God, you are captivated by God. And one day we will see God. One day we will see our Savior face to face. And we long for that day. We look forward to that day. And we know that we will not die. Why? Because we are covered by his blood. And then look at what they did. And they ate and they drank. They had a meal right there with the Lord. Think about that. Having a meal with God. That is a dinner invitation you don't refuse. <laughs> These people ate and they drank with God. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, for a moment to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. God authors his word. He's not haphazard about how he authors it or what he writes. Here are these people, the Israelite nation, They've just confirmed the covenant with the Lord. They've just said everything that the Lord has said, we will do, we will be obedient. They have just had the blood from the altar thrown upon them to consecrate them. The leaders have just beheld God with their own two eyes, and now they were sitting down and having a meal with God, to fellowship with God, and to commune with God. And is it any wonder that what we see when Jesus comes is that he would institute a time when God's people would come together to have a meal? And so, Matthew 26, verse 26 through 29 now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Do you see the beautiful picture that he is fulfilling from Exodus 24? He is saying to his disciples, he is saying to us, there is a blood of the covenant that is going to sanctify you. There is a blood of the covenant that is going to save you. But it's not the blood of oxen. It's not the blood of goats and calves. It's my blood. My blood of the covenant is going to be upon you to save you and sanctify you and make it so that you can fellowship with me. And when we then 
partake of that meal, what are we doing? We are communing with Christ. We have a seat at his table. We are there, vulnerable, laid out before him, around his table, partaking of him. That's what Jesus is doing. He's administering himself to the people. And isn't that what we want? We don't want a Savior who says, here, let me give you all of this stuff. In fact, think about it like this. A child who has been given everything from his or her father. All that they could want. Here's the credit card, child. Go and get whatever you want. The child does not want the credit card. The child wants the father. And so Jesus Christ comes and he gives himself. And he said, my blood is the blood of the covenant. My blood is what will save you. My blood is what will wash away all of your sins. What an intimate, close action of meeting with our Savior in his meal. Where he invites us to the table of the king. Would you deny him that table? Would you deny the access that he's opened up to God? Maybe this morning you would say, that's the blood that I need. That's the blood that I need because I need to be saved from my sins. I need to be made right with God. I need to have a relationship with God. The only way is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to turn from your sins. The only way is to Cast yourself upon the Savior who died upon the cross and rose again from the dead. The only way is to know His blood of the covenant. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself, administered himself to us. It was his blood that secured our eternal redemption. It was his blood that was offered one time for all. It was his blood that was shed that we need to cleanse us. It's his blood that covers us so now we can eat. We can eat the bread. We can drink the cup. We can commune with you. We can be in your presence. We can have your presence even in us as the Spirit indwells us as your people. Father, let us never, never diminish the opportunity that we have to meet with you. Let us never diminish the sacrifice of Christ. Let us never diminish the access that we have into your presence. Let us always look to faith in you and trust. Father, even when we struggle to feel it, Father, even when we're distracted, even when our heart is cluttered with a bunch of junk, we come here, we meet together, and we meet with you, and you clear it all away. Search us, O God, and know our hearts, and see if there be any evil or unbelieving way in us. Renew our minds and renew to us even the joy of our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.